Please pray with me. Holy Father and gracious God, thank you for this lesson. It is packed with doctrine that is vital to our Christian faith. Teach us, Holy Spirit, so that we might be strengthened and sustained for gospel living. Quiet our hearts and our minds from all of life's alarms, busyness, and worldliness. Help us fix our eyes on you right now. And Lord, I surrender all that I am to you. Fill me with all of you that I might teach this lesson in your power. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, the with us God. Amen. When do you cry out to God? When you say, oh God, what follows that cry? Now, I'm not talking about, oh my God, this cheesecake is good. Or, oh my God, those shoes are cute. Those are not legitimate cries to God because you're not actually addressing the one true sovereign God of the universe. The question is, when do you truly cry out from your gut, from the depths of your soul, from the bottom of your heart, oh God, I would venture to say that when you do that, it is followed by, help me, save me. When we are in dire situations, dangerous circumstances, or in the midst of suffering, pain, or injustice, then we have no problem crying out to God. We need him right there, right then. But what would change if we lived conscious of his presence every moment of every day? There is great power in the presence of God, his power. When he walked this earth, Jesus lived infused with God's power. His secret to living a God-empowered life is that he walked in total unrelenting, unbroken fellowship and dependence upon his Father. One author distilled this amazing truth into two words, Emmanuel principle. The word Emmanuel means God with us. This title was given to the one and only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, because it refers to God's everlasting intent for every aspect of every human life to be the dwelling place of God. That was his intent when he created mankind. And this is his intent as he works out his redemptive plan. Presently, he indwells every believer, imparting his own power to them. However, most believers are not aware of his power within them. They neglect to draw on his power. They fail to even acknowledge, much less experience, his power. They forget about or ignore his presence in their lives. Yet God is always present everywhere 
at all times. He is the secret to a successful, power-filled Christian walk. This secret is revealed in Genesis 39-2, where one of the most beautiful phrases ever spoken to a human soul is recorded for the first time. The Lord was with. In this instance, God was with Joseph. This phrase points to Emmanuel, the with us God. God's presence with Joseph, the Emmanuel principle, is the reason for Joseph's steadfast faith and witness during a prolonged time of intense suffering. The Emmanuel principle applies to us as well. Because God is with us, we can hold fast to our faith and live in a way that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be so careful and so intentional about doing that because Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 21 Paul writes to show us that we proclaim the gospel by how we live. That is the truth we will focus on in our two divisions, confrontation and crucifixion. So our first division is confrontation, Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now Paul's statement here is so very simply said, yet so very awkward and explosive. One apostle confronting another apostle in a very public showdown. The last time we saw Peter and Paul together, Peter had extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and agreed that the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles was the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is opposing Peter to his face because he stood condemned. What happened? Well, verse 12 through 13, Paul tells us what happened. He says, For before certain men came from James, he, meaning Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter had been eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles, his brothers and sisters in Christ, until certain men came from James, the circumcision party, or the Judaizers. When they arrived, he separated himself from the Gentiles. Peter's actions in Antioch were about more than eating. This ugly incident is full of racial overtones. The Jews had long held that the pagan Gentiles were dogs. They would sooner die than eat with the Gentile. For a Jew, their meals were sacred. With their Old Testament food laws, the Jews showed that they were God's chosen people. You see, the Jews had their own Emmanuel principle. 
to fellowship together over a meal was to fellowship with God. Early Christians grappled with the taboo of eating with unclean Gentiles and their unclean food. Theologian J. Gresham Mason summarizes the problem. He says the Gentile Christians had been released from the obligation of being circumcised and of undertaking to keep the Mosaic law. The Jewish Christians, on the other hand, had not been required to give up their ancestral mode of life. This created a huge conflict. The Jewish Christians who continued to observe and live under the law could not fellowship interact with or dine with Gentile Christians. God solved this problem by giving Peter a vision. Recorded in Acts chapter 10 verses, uh, sorry, but Acts chapters 10 and 11, God showed Peter that all Jewish food restrictions were lifted in Christ. Foods were no longer clean and unclean. All was permissible. This opened Peter's eyes to the truth that God shows no partiality. Whoever fears him and places their faith in Jesus Christ is saved. God prepared Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. When he preached the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit descended and filled them just like he had at Pentecost. Peter came to understand that his vision was not just about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It was about living in Christian fellowship with them. The Emmanuel principle was at work in Peter, changing how he saw the uncircumcised Gentile Christians. They were no longer separate and unclean, but were his equals. God was with him transforming Peter's lifelong Jewish way of living into true gospel living. Soon, it was Peter's usual custom to sit down and fellowship with the Gentiles, and he proclaimed the gospel to them by how he lived, until certain men came from James. If you recall, James, the brother of Jesus, had joined Peter in extending the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Men well connected with James went to Antioch to check up on Peter. Though they were Christians, their background as Pharisees still influenced their faith. They still followed the law of Moses, especially circumcision. This is why Paul says that Peter feared the circumcision party. Upon their arrival, Peter is put into an exceedingly difficult situation. He knew what they believed. As the apostle that God called to take the gospel to the Jews, he did not want to offend the Jewish Christians. So he draws back and separates himself. Peter caves to peer pressure. In doing so, he made the Gentiles feel like second-class Christians or not Christians at all. Peter's firm conviction was that salvation came by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 
not the law. Now his conviction falters and crumbles. He fails to stand for the truth of the gospel. Paul calls him out for his hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When Peter's behavior steps out of line with the truth of the gospel, Paul publicly rebukes him. Some scholars believe that Paul's actions were unchristlike and that he should have followed the teaching of Scripture that says you should go first to your brother in private to show him his sin. But this situation was different. Peter was an influential leader in the early church. His hypocrisy was so contagious that even Barnabas joined him. It was also public and divisive. It threatened the unity of the church as well as the truth of the gospel. Therefore, Paul's rebuke needed to be public. We proclaim the gospel by how we live. Peter's very public act was out of line with the gospel. The Judaizers were making another attempt to promote works-based righteousness. Paul reminds Peter that he was a Jew living like a Gentile, not a Jew. This means that Peter had been embracing his liberty in Christ and not following the Mosaic laws about food and circumcision. He knew he had that liberty in Christ. Peter had experienced the Emmanuel principle in a way that most cannot. God was literally with him for three years. He had walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, and been taught by Jesus. He had been saved by Jesus' finished work on the cross. He, of all people, knew that the law could not and did not save him. Paul asked, so why are you now trying to make the Gentiles live like Jews? Hypocrisy like this denies the gospel. It is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul is accusing Peter of forcing the Gentiles to Judaize or adopt Jewish customs and practices to be accepted by the church. When Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles, his message said that they were still considered unclean and had to live like Jews if they wanted to be Christians. That is not the gospel. To counter this message, Paul reminds Peter of what they have in common, their birthright. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. As natural-born Jews, Peter and Paul were part of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. They both understood the law. They knew it could not save. 
They were both recovering law followers who knew by personal experience the beauty of the grace of God poured out on them through Christ. Paul reminds Peter of this so that he would see and repent of his hypocrisy because gospel living excludes all hypocrisy. Our first truth is gospel living excludes all hypocrisy. What specific things do you say and do that do not back up what you say you believe? Which parts of your conduct do not line up with the truth of the gospel? We are all guilty of hypocrisy. We fail to walk the walk of all we profess as believers. We need God with us. How could you develop an awareness of God's power and presence in your day-to-day -day life? God was, is, and always will be Emmanuel, God with us. When we do not sense his power and presence in our day-to-day -day life, it is because we have not nurtured or cultivated the secret to living a God-empowered life, the Emmanuel principle. This takes discipline. Maintaining an awareness of his presence is accomplished by regularly engaging in prayer and worship, by studying scripture for his personal word to you, by meditating on who he says he is in scripture by relying on him to empower you to serve him. All of these practices keep our focus on gospel truth, the truth about God, the truth about our sin, and the truth about Jesus Christ. They help us combat the flesh that causes us to live in ways that deny the truth of the gospel. Gospel living excludes all such hypocrisy Root it out. Root out all hypocrisy in your life. Take the time to do the optional exercises at the end of your lessons. They are designed to help you focus on gospel truth, and that results in gospel living. We proclaim the gospel by how we live. This requires crucifixion. Paul explains this in our next division. Crucifixion, Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. Now here we come to one of the most important verses in all of Galatians, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now do you hear Paul? He's railing against works of the law as a means of being right with God. He underscores again and again, three times in verse 16, that we are justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. No human credentials and no human effort make us right with God. Like Paul, like Peter, we're justified only by faith in Christ.
The doctrine of justification is foundational to the Christian faith. We must understand it. Martin Luther says that if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. Justification is a legal term used in a court of law to proclaim someone innocent, to acquit or clear someone of all charges. Biblically, justification is God's one-time irreversible act of declaring sinners forgiven and given Christ's righteousness. It is the gracious act of God in forgiving and declaring sinners righteous or in right standing before him when they, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ. Because we are utterly unable to keep the law, we cannot be justified by the law. Paul knew from personal experience that he could not deal with his sin nature by keeping the law. It had not kept him from denying and persecuting Christ. He reminds Peter that he, like everyone else, had put his faith in Jesus Christ, whose saving death alone could remove his guilt and give him right standing before holy God. If anybody could be saved by the law, it would be a natural-born Jew. But they failed at doing so. Therefore, how absurd was it for Peter to compel the Gentiles to keep the very law that he himself had stopped trusting in for his own salvation? The Bible is clear. Even our best attempts at righteousness are tainted by evil motives. The prophet Isaiah says that they are filthy rags. All of humankind is totally depraved. This puts us all on equal footing before God. We are all only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter knew this. He was not living out what he believed. Instead, he reverted to old Jewish practices and prejudices. How quickly and easily he forgot that the gospel is proclaimed by how we live. In verse 17, Paul responds to the Judaizers' accusation that he and Peter were sinners because they had abandoned the Torah or the law of Moses. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul and Peter had exchanged the law for the grace of Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. Now they were living out the gospel among the Gentiles, something a proper law-abiding Jew would never do. The Judaizers were appalled. Paul says that in their eyes, we too were found to be sinners. This raises the question, does this then make Christ a servant of sin? Paul answers, certainly not. This would be like blaming his grace for our guilt. God justifies sinners by faith, but he never ever aids and abets their sin. 
James 1.13 tells us that God cannot sin, nor does he tempt us to sin. Psalm 51.5 says that we are born sinners. The psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our sin is our own fault. That is why we must be born again by the Spirit of God. That is why we need a Savior. In verse 18, Paul argues that the doctrine that promotes sin is justification by the law. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul is speaking of the Old Testament law torn down by the preaching of the gospel. Peter was trying to raise up part of what Paul and the gospel had torn down. He was preaching that the Galatians had been saved by faith, not by works. Then he made works of the law, especially food laws, a test of Christian faith. Paul says that if they rebuilt the law, they would again become transgressors because they cannot keep the law as perfectly as it requires. Jesus Christ destroyed the law as a way of becoming right with God. It must not be rebuilt or reinstated. This has a profound effect on how we live. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Note that Paul does not say that the law dies. He says he died to the law. I mean, what an amazing thing for a former Pharisee to say. Paul loved the law. He lived for the law. He defended the law. Now, he says he's died to the law. In other words, he's no longer under the power of the law. He is freed from its dominion. He is liberated from the works it required of him to be made right before God. But Paul says, through the law, not the gospel, I died to the law. You see, the law did Paul in. It showed him that he was a hopeless, helpless sinner that nothing or no one but Jesus Christ could save. The penalty of sin is death. The law came with this deadly curse for anyone who failed to keep God's law perfectly. And that is everyone. But for Christians, the law's curse of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. The law put him to death on the cross in our place. Paul is saying when Christ died on the cross, he died too. He died to the law through the death of Christ on the cross. Jesus is Paul's substitute and ours. This transforms how every believer lives. Paul argues this point in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were nailed to the cross, crucified with Christ. Philip Graham Ryken says that cru the crucifixion 
is part of every Christian's personal life story. That the Christian has been crucified in Christ rests on the most magnificent of all doctrines, union with Christ. Again and again, the scripture teaches that the Christian is in Christ. Paul says it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This reveals the incredible attribute of Emmanuel, which means God with us. By faith, we are so united to Christ that we are one with him. His story, the story of the cross, the story of the resurrection, it becomes our story. His righteousness, his perfect obedience to every jot and tittle of the law, it becomes our righteousness. We are so united with him that we were really and truly nailed to the cross with him, where the law carried out its death penalty against us. Our old life has been crucified, put to death. We now have new life in Christ. What a glorious truth. The only life we have is the life God has imparted to us through Jesus Christ. Emmanuel life. Jesus Christ lives in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as he does, he shows us our true identity, our true self. Now, this doesn't mean that we all look and act the same. We are still uniquely and lovingly made by our Creator. But now, we have a healthy self-image. We see ourselves as we are in Christ. We can say with Paul, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, who gave himself for me. You see, it's personal. We proclaim the gospel by how we live, and we can only do so when we live by faith in the Son of God. Our life of faith is a response of love to the one who saved us. This is the true doctrine of works. We do not work to be saved, but we work because we have been saved. Genuine faith produces good deeds. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 defines the doctrine of work saying, It is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Verse 21 drives Paul's point home. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In a nutshell, if the works of the law could save us, who needs Jesus? If our human efforts could save us, Jesus died a worthless death on a meaningless cross. Even worse, we would never, ever, ever be able to proclaim, it is finished. For who would determine when our works were enough to fulfill the law or sufficient to stay God's wrath? 
Martin Luther considered it an intolerable and horrible blasphemy to think up some work by which you presume to placate God. When you see that he cannot be placated except by this immense, infinite price, the death and blood of the Son of God, one drop of which is more precious than all creation. Yet this is exactly what the Judaizers were doing by adding work to faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter had agreed with them. But Paul steadfastly refused to nullify God's grace. He held on tight to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Old Paul was crucified. New Paul lived and breathed the truth of the gospel, proclaiming it in how he lived. He knew the secret of the Emmanuel principle. He lived by the power of the Christ who lived in him. And you and I must do the same. Our second truth is that gospel living is accomplished only by God with us power. How has the crucifixion become part of your life story? In what ways have you put self to death? Which thoughts of personal pleasure and prestige have you exchanged for thoughts of God's goodness and glory? Or maybe you are still struggling and are exchanging thoughts of God's goodness and glory for thoughts of personal pleasure and prestige. If so, Embrace the God with us power of the Emmanuel principle. God with us power is the only way to triumph in living out the truth of the gospel. Crucifixion is required. It must become part of your life story. When God called a man named John Wesley to bring about revival in a corrupt church, he faced intense opposition in public and in private. But he allowed for no amount of opposition to prevail against the divine urgency of God's call. Instead, he trained his heart on the faithfulness of God, not the opposition he faced. After years of battle, his dying words were, Best of all is... God is with us. But I do not believe that is the first time he uttered those words. I think those were also his living words. Wesley knew the secret of the Emmanuel principle. The best of all is God is with us. Let those be your living words. No matter the hardship you face, Know this, the best of all is God is with us. Gospel living is accomplished only by God with us power. And he is flawlessly faithful. Are you crying out to God right now? Are you doing so 
armed with the truth about Emmanuel, the with us God. The Emmanuel principle is the secret to living infused with the power of God. How aware are you that God Almighty and His incomparable power lives and works in and through you? When you and I die to self to live according to Christ's power at work in us, the part-time help we seek when we cry out in times of danger, difficulty, or distress becomes a full-time empowering that continually imparts the power of God to us in every circumstance, good and bad. God is with you, my friends. Gospel living means that you live aware of his presence and dependent upon his power. Commit to praying Paul's words back to God each day. Pray, oh God, you are my help and my hope. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I must die to self and live for God, equipped with the power and presence of Emmanuel, God with us. Only then will we proclaim the gospel by how we live. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we praise you because Christ is in us. What a gift of grace. We have his power, resurrection power, at work in us and on our behalf to help us persevere and maintain a steady, straight course on our Christian walk. We have your power and presence, Emmanuel to help us proclaim the gospel by how we live. Lord God, give us your sustaining power this week as we are spending time with family or missing family. We need you, God. Oh, how we need you. You are the with us, God. Fill us, empower us by your grace and for your glory. This we ask in the name of our precious and powerful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.